vacationing man excited to try fast food franchise not found in hometown. Man hoping people notice how many folding chairs he's carrying at once. Family watching movie white knuckles it through unexpected sex scene. Overweight man repeatedly introduced to overweight woman at party. Man says fuck it, eats lunch at 10.58 a.m. Zoning committee meets, zones a bunch of shit. And uh, the quote was, man, we were zoning shit left and right. You wouldn't believe the shit we zoned. God answers prayers of paralyzed little boy. No, says God. This is The Venture, a branded podcast from Virgin Atlantic and Gimlet Creative about pioneering businesses and the people who made them possible. I'm your host, Ashley Milne-Tite. We're taking this journey alongside Virgin Atlantic, a company that embodies the entrepreneurial spirit and celebrates challenging the status quo. These are stories about visionaries and makers who change the face of their industries. Before there was a president tweeting about fake news, before viral videos, before The Daily Show, there was The Onion, a satirical newspaper full of snappy, hilarious headlines that were so good or so bad that people wanted to read them out loud to their friends. It was the first time that I saw a sensibility geared towards my generation comedically. It was just very Generation X. I mean, Onion was good at clickbait before there was a term. For it. They gave us the framework for what news satire looks like and what it can be. Satire done so well that it created a wide field of imitators and an entire new way to make people laugh. The Onion has both observed the world and changed it. A generation of Onion alumni have gone on to jobs across comedy, jobs at late-night talk shows, sitcoms, and websites that now compete with the very institution that created news satire on the web. The Onion has survived every platform shift that the internet has thrown at media companies. This is the story of that paper's history and the story of how its biggest future challenge may be its own success. The Onion was born in Madison, Wisconsin in 1988. The proud parents were Tim Keck and Christopher Johnson, two University of Wisconsin students. Their ambitions weren't grand. Like most college kids, they were interested in making some cash, in their case, by selling newspaper ads to local pizza joints. But first, they need a paper. And that's when they met a popular local cartoonist named Scott Dickers. And they offered to pay me uh, an extraordinary amount of money to draw a bunch of different cartoons for them. $20 per comic strip, which was four times the going rate in the campus newspaper market at that time. Scott was The Onion's first paid contributor, and he says the early days of the publication were extremely ragtag. They didn't have a computer. They went to Kinko's to print things out, and they had no money. It was all very seat-of-your-pants. But even sustaining that very low level of professionalism was a stretch. Tim and Christopher were swamped, trying to write articles, sell ads, create the paper, and distribute it. It was so much work, they were considering throwing in the towel just two issues in. They had been planning uh, with issue three to take a photo of the two of them mooning the camera uh, and printing it on the cover of issue three with the big banner headline that said, Fuck you, readers, we quit. And that was going to be it, because they had just had enough. (laughs) So Scott stepped in. He took on editing responsibilities. With an extra set of hands, they were able to keep their butts off the front page. But money at the paper was still tight. In fact, one of the reasons the paper was a paper at all was because making a magazine like the National Lampoon and Spy was too expensive. 
those guys asked the printer, like, okay, what's the cheapest kind of paper we can possibly print on? And they said, well, that's easy, newsprint. When I first heard that, I was very disappointed because all humor publications are magazines. There's never been a humor newspaper. Like, what is that? But this name, The Onion, seemed like a great name for a newspaper because it's like you peel back the layers to get at the facts. That idea would only develop later, though. Under founders Tim and Chris, the paper wasn't yet focused on mocking the news. It was focused on mocking everything. And eventually, they got bored. So in 1989, they sold The Onion to a small group of contributors, one of whom was Scott Dickers. Why did you buy The Onion? And, and how did you get the money? This was a chance to put my money where my mouth was or, you know, follow up my passion with my money. And it just was a no-brainer to me. It was a little nerve-wracking because I didn't have a lot of money. You know, the life of a professional cartoonist is probably not in the top uh, 10% of income earners. But I did have some savings, and I was able to scrape together every penny of savings that I had, uh, cash in every bank account, uh, to come up with the money that I would need to buy in, which was $3,000. The total sale price in 1989 was less than $20,000. Tim eventually moved to Seattle and went on to co-found The Stranger, the city's alt-weekly paper. Christopher would become an owner of The Alibi, Albuquerque's alt-weekly. Scott Dickers and fellow investor Peter Hazy were running the paper. They made a simple agreement that governed The Onion. Our deal was he couldn't tell me what I could write, and I couldn't tell him what he could spend the money on. Scott's tenure was marked by tightening up the paper's tone. His team introduced the idea of strictly parroting Associated Press style. His reasoning? If The Onion was going to look like a paper, the comedy would have the most punch if it behaved like a paper. The Onion started running editorial pages, a weather map, and fake stock reports. At that time, the parody of the newspaper was new. This is Mike Sachs, a Vanity Fair writer. It was like a zine or something. It was a real local thing, going after specific mayors and governors and using, you know, things now that you wouldn't even look twice on the internet, but at that time, sexually related stuff and other things that I just thought, well, that's pretty bold. If they're getting money through advertisements and they're willing to piss people off. These weren't people in it to make money. You know, the, These people were in it just for the love of the total comedy geekery. The paper was coming into its own. And it was a very clever conceit. It became a Trojan horse where you can get a lot of ideas through, and it became a very readable thing. In 1993, The Onion launched the AV Club with music and film reviews to provide content that was a little safer for advertisers. To extend their reach beyond Wisconsin, The Onion started selling subscriptions and distributing the paper to other college towns. And then, in 1996, The Onion went online. Scanned images of the paper's articles had already been making their way to inboxes and forums through users who found them hysterical and passed them around without attribution. Having a website allowed The Onion to get credit for its work. Baratunde Thurston was a fan of The Onion before joining up as a web editor in 2007. His favorite headline is from a historical issue, a sort of fake archival edition. From that 1800s edition, 40,000 pounds of slave lost at sea. I like the dark stuff, man. Baratunde says as soon as The Onion began putting its paper online on Wednesdays, it became the bane of bosses everywhere. Because people would show up at work on Wednesday and not work. And they would read The Onion and pass things around. 
going online also helped The Onion attract Hollywood's attention. The Onion's writers were tapped to create fake news segments for The Dana Carvey Show. In 1999, The Onion won a Webby. The same year, The Onion released its first book, Our Dumb Century, capitalising on a craze for end-of-the-century retrospectives. The book won the Thurber Prize for humour. The Onion would go on to sign deals with Miramax and Fox Searchlight to develop articles into films. The Onion was officially a multi-platform powerhouse in print, publishing, TV, film and the web. But The Onion hadn't always consistently turned out comedy gold, according to Scott Dickers. We put out a comedy CD that had very little to do with fake news. And it was so off-brand, it was, like, confusing to people. And then we tried to do a sketch comedy TV show. We did two pilot episodes of this show with a bunch of Second City performers. And again, it was very off-brand. It just didn't feel like The Onion at all. And I learned a lot from those two enterprises about how not to do it. You know, you have to stay within the brand voice that people know, but you can't just port the voice from one medium to another. You have to reinvent it in every medium uh, to suit the needs of that medium. And that was a lesson we learned hard. The Onion decided to stick with what they knew, skewering the news, starting with the headline. And the way they wrote them back then is still the way they write them now. The process of developing an Onion story from the initial germ of that idea to what you see on the website is exhaustive. Marnie Shaw is the managing editor of The Onion today. Several times a week, the writers get together to brainstorm headline ideas. Nobody has laptops in front of them. Everybody has come to that room with a printed list, and they're all read aloud, and people vote in this one communal space. The pitches are each discussed, and if that discussion leads to excited brainstorming of the idea, we usually tend to uh, select it for publication. The process is designed to efficiently surface the funniest stuff, according to Baratunde Thurston. It makes the initial round of judgment swift and fair. You don't know who wrote the headline. And so you're just judging on the merits. So there was it sort of was like a blind admissions policy for the material. That blindness continues beyond the pitch meeting. Onion stories aren't bylined. You don't know who really wrote them because often they're written by several writers. Scott Dickers enforced the no-byline culture when he was editor-in-chief. Looking back, that was literally the biggest self-sabotage I could have possibly done to my own career. Because when you leave The Onion and you like go out to Hollywood or you try to sell a book, it's like, well, yeah, I know The Onion, but who the hell are you? But over the years, the writers got used to it. Now people come on and they not only embrace it, but they defend it heartily. And it's almost like... You're going against the culture if you try to take any credit uh, for having done anything at The Onion. Throughout the 90s, The Onion's popularity grew. It was super fun. It was like the party office, you know. Everybody was young and excited to be on this seeming rocket ship when we went online. And in the spring of 2001, The Onion piloted the rocket ship to New York City to feed off the energy of the city as a comedy and media hub. The writers moved into a converted warehouse in Chelsea. The Onion was online, and it had grown its print editions to half a dozen cities or so. But New York wasn't yet one of them. They were excited to put out their New York edition. 
It was scheduled to be printed September 11th, 2001. You're listening to The Venture, brought to you by Virgin Atlantic. Virgin Atlantic is known for its irreverent brand and friendly service. And training employees to create that vibe on transatlantic trips is a big part of John Yates' job. He's the vice president of Cabin at Virgin Atlantic. The service training at Virgin Atlantic always starts with what are our values, what is our culture. And that culture comes from hiring people who have that certain something. The Virgin personality and the Virgin flair you know, you know when you're sitting down and talking to someone for 10 or 15 minutes, you know whether they've got that or not. I'm an absolute believer that recruit for um, recruit for behaviours and attitude, not for skill. You can train skill and you, you know, you can develop skills. But attitude and behaviours, you know, you either have it instinctively or you don't. The Virgin team love being up in the skies and they love to make flying a fantastic experience for their guests by working together as a team. Just like writers at The Onion pull together to create a great and hilarious experience for readers, Virgin Atlantic crews all work together to create amazing memories. I'm very much a believer of if we get it right with our teams, then our teams will uh, get it right for for the customer. Virgin Atlantic. Playing together is serious business. To learn more, go to virginatlantic.com slash theventure. Welcome back to The Venture. I'm your host, Ashley Miltite. On September 11th, 2001, The Onion was scheduled to print their very first New York City edition, but it never got printed. The trade centers here in New York have been hit by airplanes, and there, as you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. When the smoke cleared, nearly 3,000 people were dead, and the comedy world, centred in New York City, had gone dark. The late-night shows ran reruns. Comedy websites like College Humor posted, definitely not a time for humor, and urged people to give blood. Not knowing what to say, Saturday Night Live delayed the start of its season. The nation's attention was riveted to the news. But on the news, the mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, was beginning to implore people to carry on. David Letterman was the first late-night host to answer the call, returning less than a week later. He struggled to strike the right tone in his monologue and erred on the side of sensitive rather than funny. Uh, This is our uh, first show uh, on the air since uh, New York and Washington uh, were attacked. And uh, I I need to ask your uh, patience and and indulgence here because... Other late-night hosts grappled with the same impossible challenge, what to say about the unspeakable. And then, on September 27th, The Onion returned. Their very first paper printed in New York City was finally out. Vanity Fair's Mike Sachs remembers looking for the issue. People were looking for something tangible to hold in their hands uh, to try to sort of understand and digest what had happened. When he found it, he discovered that The Onion had delivered the impossible, with headlines like, U.S. vows to defeat whoever we're at war with. American life turns into bad Jerry Bruckheimer movie. Not knowing what else to do, woman bakes American flag cake. And the overwhelming response was, thank you for doing that. The fact that The Onion came out, very risky thing to do, because the margin of error was very, very thin. And they managed to hit it right on the head. 
Beth Newell is the co-founder of The Reductress, an Onion-inspired website that lampoons women's magazines. The 9-11 issue had a big influence on how she approaches tough subjects like sexual assault in her publication. It was really inspirational in just proving that you can make comedy out of some of like the darkest times and the darkest feelings. The Onion had only been in New York for a matter of months, but they had managed to make the best of the city's worst moment. These writers, they came from Wisconsin. They recently moved to New York. Again, Mike Sachs. And to be here to witness something like that must have taken a tremendous toll. So the what they accomplished under incredibly trying circumstances and the fact that they pulled it off, I think, is almost historical. Scott Dickers was a longtime editor-in-chief for The Onion. Comedy is a great coping mechanism for tragedy. It's, it's a wonderful way to return to our humanity after um, a tragic event. It's a wonderful way to um, move out of our sort of lower brain fear into higher brain intellectual processing and be able to laugh, which is just a very healing thing. Comedians and historians alike cite the 9-11 issue as a watershed. A national tragedy had strangely become a high point for The Onion, and that made the paper an appealing investment for David Schaefer, the money manager. He bought the paper for, according to at least one report, $4 million, a far cry from the initial sale of less than 20000 The infusion of capital helped the paper expand, but it also included new management and new priorities. Baratunde Thurston was the director of digital a decade ago, back when The Onion published more like a newspaper than a website. Nothing on the weekends. Nobody consumes content on the weekends. That's, those are days of rest. Remember we used to have rest? So I showed up in that era. As the digital guy, it drove him crazy. The internet was changing the entire media industry. There was more competition for the ad dollars and more demand for content from readers. Baratunde began to slowly convince the staff to adopt Twitter and other social tools. And eventually, just as The Onion had with other platforms, it started making social media on its own terms. Because I was even playing by some conventional rules. And I was like, no, 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 what, what is The Onion? It's media satire. What is media? It's all this interactive stuff now, too. It's not a print newspaper. It's barely cable news. It's like journalistic voices on Twitter, and you gotta be on social media. The company was moving toward thinking about itself as a digital publication rather than strictly a newspaper, according to former editor-in-chief Scott Dickers. And we stopped referring to things as, for example, front page stories, or this is our page two story, or whatever like that. That's just how we always talked about it. Um, but once we made the switch, uh, it was all about um, the internet. It was all about, you know, the most emailed story or the mix on the, the home page. That change was happening across the industry. Just a few years after The Onion's 9-11 issue had been widely applauded for helping people laugh again, the media landscape was fracturing. Websites that made money by selling ads, like The Onion, found themselves struggling to boost profits in a saturated media environment. More options for advertisers were pushing down prices. Sometimes brands have a hard time being around with anything that doesn't seem PG. Mike McAvoy is the president and CEO of The Onion. Getting comedy to be financed at the way that it needs to be is always, is always a challenge. You know, in part because you give writers full autonomy to write whatever they want to write about. Sometimes the best uh, satirical takes are not necessarily the best solutions for advertisers. 
and vice versa. There's a battle for attention happening in our world. Baratunde Thurston says writers sometimes chafed at the ads that would show up on The Onion's homepage. And I just remember this a specific fucking Cheetos ad where the, you, you, would, you would go to the homepage and you're like, oh, I'm just at The Onion homepage getting my content here for what I can. What the? Because there was like Cheeto dust being sprinkled. For Baratunde, seeing Cheeto dust sprinkled all over The Onion's headlines was a flashing orange sign that the paper was moving away from its underground roots. There was a a larger moral challenge at a place like The Onion, which is countercultural, which speaks truth to power, which parodies everyone else who caves. It's not like investors' business daily. For a place like The Onion, whose audience trusts authority less... You have to know who your people are and know what your voice is. The Onion voice is pretty clear. CEO Mike McAvoy argues that The Onion does speak truth to power, which can sometimes make it harder for the paper to sell ads, but that advertisers never prevent the paper from speaking its mind. Instead, it's more about balancing how The Onion crafts messages from brands. You need to be ad-friendly because advertising is an extremely difficult business and that Google and Facebook take up the lion's share of digital advertising. You need to be, you know, clever to carve out your niche within the advertising community. As long as the user can control the experience in some meaningful way, it's not too intense. It's not, you know, a bad user experience. If that's the best way to to finance journalism. The Onion's not alone in struggling to walk the line between retaining creative independence and wooing advertisers. But Scott Dickers says he's seen a shift in the culture of The Onion as it's grown. Because it's like a big company now, and it's got, you know, I don't know, over 100 employees, and it's, it's got a board of directors, literally these guys in blazers who would come in the office and act like they ran the place. And I'd be like, who is that? <laughs> but um, it's just a different culture now, and the office feels like an accounting firm, uh, whereas for much of its history prior to that, it felt like... Uh, a dorm lounge. But the reality is you can't live in the dorms forever. Onion Corporate was based in Chicago, along with the AV Club. And eventually, the New York City office where the writers were based was too expensive. By 2012, the Blazers in Chicago decided to call the writers back to the Midwest. The writers had to decide, stay in New York or keep their jobs and move to Chicago. 75% of the writers chose New York. In this new environment, The Onion was a business, and they were tired of not making money. I can't blame them. Like, they weren't going to spend 25 grand on a web video anymore. They were going to spend money on things that could earn a profit back. The power had definitely shifted from the creative side to the business side at that point. It was almost like a small band on a small record label being bought out by Warner Brothers. Again, Vanity Fair's Mike Sachs. And then that band going in a direction that they wouldn't have gone in otherwise. Sort of the underground sensibility disappeared when that happened. And a year later, in 2013, The Onion stopped printing paper editions. The physical medium that had helped the paper find its voice and create an entirely new category of comedy was obsolete. The move to Chicago had challenged The Onion's street cred. It had been decades since the paper was an upstart. But The Onion had become legendary. Its alumni were teaching improv in Chicago, writing for The Daily Show and The Colbert Report, and every late-night show writing room from The Tonight Show to The Late Show. 
Onion writers work particularly well in TV writing rooms, according to Mike Sachs. At The Onion, it was putting aside your own differences and your own self for the common good. And I think that's an important thing to know in TV, where it may not be your joke up on the air, but as long as the best joke is out there, um, then that's what matters. And also, even if it is your joke on TV, you're not going to have a byline on it. And The Onion had also incubated an entire class of readers, influenced by the paper's voice, who were inspired to borrow its form for their own publications. One of The Onion's heirs is the website The Reductress. Here's how co-founder Sarah Papalato explains her site to people. I kind of triangulate first. I'm like, do you know The Onion? All right, you know Cosmopolitan? So where are The Onion meets Cosmo? The Reductress mocks the tone of women's magazines, and their style is influenced by teenage years spent reading The Onion. Here's the other co-founder, Beth Newell, with this recent headline. Study finds straight women have fewest orgasms, but keep fucking Jeff anyway. I think that's a pretty typical Onion setup. You just start with a sort of more realistic headline, I guess, and then finish it with an absurdist twist. But when we do a headline construction like that, we make sure that the content is very focused on women's issues or something relating to women. Woman spends five years grooming boyfriend to be great husband to Lisa. That's definitely got some onion influence. (laughs) (laughs) Mom demands to know how you plan on enjoying this nice weather. Miranda's text to new guy currently under peer review. I think they gave us the framework for what new satire looks like and what it can be in its highest form. They've set the bar pretty high for what what new satire is for our culture. The bar isn't just high, it's pricey too. Last year, The Onion sold 40% of its shares to Univision. For how much wasn't disclosed, but reports range from $27 to $200 million. The scrappy pizza coupon rag is now an empire, which would make a good headline. Area College newspaper gets last laugh. The Venture is a co-production of Virgin Atlantic, Gimlet Creative, and Filio and Partners. We were produced this week by Rachel Ward and Nicole Wall, with help from Caitlin Baguki, Julia Botero, Caitlin Delena, Francis Harlow, Grant Irving, and Abby Ruzika. Creative direction from Nazanin Rafsanjani. Production assistance from Tom Cody. We were edited by Wendy Daw and mixed by Zach Schmidt and Andrew Dunn. Our theme song was composed by Bobby Lord and Matthew Ball. Special thanks to Stephen Thompson and Dr. Sophia A. McLennan. And extra special thanks to Kalila Holt, Jonathan Goldstein, Alex Bloomberg, Katie Sikelski, Hallie Cantor, and Brittany Meyer for sharing their favorite Onion headlines with us. Music for this episode is courtesy of West One Music and Marmoset. Coming up next time on The Venture, we meet a man who devoted his life to trying to unite the entire human race, spreading his message with soap. Most people come up with a label to sell the contents. My grandfather came up with the contents to spread his message. That's the story of Dr. Bronner's coming up next week on The Venture. 
If you like The Venture, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review to tell us why. It really helps people find our show. To learn more about the show, go to virginatlantic.com slash The Venture. I'm Ashley Montite. Thanks so much for listening.